Welcome to the Wineinvest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, how do you think you would have reacted if you had opened a new bar or restaurant in January 2020, just before the pandemic struck? Well, my guest this week did just that. His name is Cam Didashti, and he is the co-founder of Little Door & Co., which currently operates three superb bars in London called The Little Orange Door, The Little Blue Door and The Little Yellow Door, which are in Clapham, Fulham and Notting Hill. He was a brilliant guest. He's full of energy and I thoroughly enjoyed chatting to him. Uh, He spent most of his career in the event or hospitality industry. Um, We discuss how he started out and then how he spent much of his time flying around the world organising Formula One parties. We then discuss how and why he started the Little Door concept. We talk about his fundraising journey and finally how he's coped over the successive lockdowns and I suppose more importantly how he's now raring to go because we're all free. Do check out their website at thelittledoorandco.com and his bars in Clapham, Fulham and Notting Hill. But without further ado, this is the Wine Best Podcast. Cam Dadeshti, welcome to the podcast. Cam, how do you start your career? So I actually studied economics at Bristol Uni and I was meant to go into banking. And I remember coming home that summer and I went to a bar on a Sunday night. A friend recommended it to me. And I met this band that I really, really liked. And it became a bit of a ritual hangout on Sundays. We would go to this bar and watch the same band every week. And uh, we got to know the band very well. And I started thinking, you know, these guys are playing in this small bar. They really need to be doing bigger gigs. Everyone I know loves them. And our little crew of three or four started becoming a crew of 30 that would come every Sunday and bigger and bigger. So I asked the manager whether I could help the band in any shape or form just, you know, expand their, their horizons. And he said, yeah, sure. We obviously we have a full bar every Sunday, but we don't have anybody's data. So could you help us gather data? So I sat, there was communal loos at this place. So I sat at the front of these communal loos and people would come in and I'd be like, hi, do you like the band? And they're like, um, I'm just trying to use the toilet. And basically I collected a few thousand email addresses. And off the back of that, I was like, I said to the manager, I said, look, can we organize a gig somewhere else just to mix it up? And he said, sure, go ahead. So I did a gig and then I did three gigs and then I did 12 gigs and then one of the venues I was doing the gigs at basically said, do you want to come and work for us organizing, you know, events and whatnot? So that was my inroad into hospitality. So, Cam, then what was the next stage? What was the next stage after university? So basically, I ended up working for that group that I was organizing the concerts at. Ended up coming in as sort of an events and guest list coordinator. They had two bars at the time. I... I sat in a room with the three owners and over the sort of four years I was there, I ended up running the company at the age of 25. All three owners basically went home to Australia where they were from. Uh, They let me run the company on their behalf. I helped them secure a third venue and put the whole backbone and, and infrastructure in place, the whole team in place and ran that company very successfully for quite a few years. Off the back of that, I went and got a job at Ignite Group which at the time had some pretty massive brands. They had Bougie, the nightclub. They had Cocoon, the Pan-Asian restaurant off Regent Street, all the Eclipse bars, all the Bumpkin restaurants. And I became head of events for that group. Stayed there for five really successful years. Had an absolute ball organizing lots of events domestically, but also huge parties in Ibiza and in Paris and in other places. And 
it was actually following a massive event that I did at Battersea Power Station with, I think it was Bob Sinclair, the DJ. I remember waking up the next morning and, and turning around to my flatmate and saying, oh, what I really, really want is to organize big international events now. That's what I really want to do. You know, I don't want to do these domestic events anymore. And I literally opened my inbox and I got sent this email from a recruiter saying, do you want to work for a big global brand organizing international events all around the world? And I just was like, that is the strangest thing that's ever happened. And it said it's a motorsport company. And I thought, oh my God, right? It, please be Formula One. Because as much as I love all motorsports, I don't think there's anything that compares to Formula One. I applied and I, I got asked in for an interview without knowing what the sport was. And I had to do actually a couple rounds of interviews before they confirmed that it was F1. And in the end, after I think five rounds of interviews, I got given the position of director of sales as my first director's position. I think I was 32 at the time or 31 for F1's official event arm. So the really tedious task of organizing parties and events at all the Grand Prix, which as I'm sure you can imagine is really, really boring. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And how did you adjust that? Like, and wonder if you can sort of let our listeners know what it's like managing events on such an enormous scale. I mean, did you get very stressed by it, for example? I mean, yeah. I mean, stress is is part and parcel of event management. I mean, without a doubt. I think first and foremost, if you can imagine, if you're doing it on an international scale, the first Grand Prix of the year is, is the Australian one. I had never been to Australia. I'd never even been to a Grand Prix. That was, and, and now I'm organizing the official party and the official three-day concert, which was, by the way, Lenny Kravitz. And I'm doing this in Australia, in a city I've never been to, on a totally different time zone. So I would work all day in the office, and then I'd have to wait till late night and then do all, all the calls from between like midnight and four in the morning, and then get back up at nine and go to the office. But, you know, it's a thrill in events, you know, so... You've got a lot of pressure. There's a lot to deliver. People are counting on you. People are coming usually to events to let their hair down, to have a really fun time, and they want everything to go smoothly, and that all falls on you. But on the flip side, you know, when it does go well, you form these amazing moments. You often have these amazing bonds with your clients because this will be one of the highlights of, of their lives. So it is amazing. Hard work, but it's amazing. What do you think makes a good event manager? What do you think the skill set is? And maybe what do you look for? What were you looking for when you were sort of hiring and building teams and event management? You know, we did a training session two days ago that I, I talked to my whole team about, which is, you know, the swan effect. I think the ability to stay and remain calm in the face of adversity whilst frantically paddling underneath to make sure that everything is okay, but looking majestic on top, I think is a real quality. It's a very difficult skill when you know the house is on fire to just calmly be like to look to your client saying i have this do not worry walk away without your pace accelerating then turn the corner and be like right damn how are we doing this that's a key skill so let's wind forward and let's introduce a little yellow door first of all why did you start the company and what problem were you trying to solve look i would love to say that i had a big master plan but the simple truth is i didn't what happened was that company that I actually said that I went to work for after I met the band, I stayed in touch with the owners. They sold two of their sites. They kept one of their sites and they tried to run it for a few years after I left and they just kind of ran it into the ground. So sort of 10 years after I'd left their business, my old boss calls me up and he says, look, I've got this site. It's failing. The contract on the lease terminates in six months. 
I know that you, you know, you're, you're in the industry. Do you want to take it over for six months and do like a fun pop-up? And at the time I was doing pop-ups with, with other brands and stuff like that. And I just went, sure, I'll do it. Why not? And I hadn't really formulated what I was going to do. So then I, I, I went and connected the keys room and literally the next day. And then I called, I think it was like 10 or 12 people that I know that I wanted to work with. or And that was across like music, food, beverage, you know, people who I knew in brands and collaborations, things like that. And I just, yeah, I just kind of talked to 10 different people. And out of the 10, there was three others who seemed interested. Then we sat in the site for two days and we kept talking about the concept and we were like, right, okay, well, this really feels like a living room in here, but why don't we do this? And we talked, we, we threw a million concepts out and then someone would go, well, you know, this really feels like a house. And then we were like, no, no, but okay, let's do this. And then another million concepts. And we literally did that for two days. So at one point someone was like, look guys, we keep saying it looks like a house. Why don't we just do the house thing? And the thing is for me at the time, I remember saying, you know, look, the house thing has been done. You know, there's been bars all around the world that are called, you know, apartment, you know, 195 or whatever it is. If we're going to do it, we have to do it with our own slants. And to be fair, the site was a bit shabby chic, to be honest. And as such, we were like, right, it's not really that nice. We can't make it the really aspirational flat. Why don't we just pretend to be like a bunch of flatmates, not quite uni flatmates, but like maybe straight after uni flatmates who've come to live together and have started throwing house parties and dinner parties in their house. And tell me, when you were sort of devising the idea, did you have any brands that you were sort of wanting to emulate or, or companies that you looked up to, maybe not in events, but that you wanted to sort of emulate in terms of the look and the feel of the place? I mean, to be honest, at the time, I think as we've progressed as a group, that, that that's changed. At the time, it was very much a side project. It was meant to be a little side hustle that was going to make a little bit of money that was going to last for six months. A newspaper article came out within... I think a few weeks of us opening about how we were a real flat and a bunch of people in a real flat had started throwing house parties and they'd gone completely nuts in Notting Hill. And we sat in a room and we remember having this conversation. We said, right, you know, we started, we started getting phone calls from lots of press and press were asking us whether, you know, this was true. And we're like, look, we should never lie. I mean, you know, we don't want to just create a fake story. However, we don't also have to tell the full truth. So we had this wonderful thing where each of the four of us, if we were asked whether we live there, we would say, oh, I don't, but the others do. And it was our way of just never really quite answering the question. And so that obviously continued sort of blowing up the whole question about it being a real flat. And so it became viral and there was queues around the corner. And to answer your question, at the time, we weren't trying to do anything. We were just trying to survive because this idea had gone spiral totally out of control. We were like, we would turn up, you know, one day we'd open the next day we'd turn up and there's 100 people queuing outside and we're like, what the hell just happened? And can you try and describe what the interiors look like? Yeah, so it's worth saying. So there are now actually several colored doors. The original little yellow door pop-up lasted three and a half years. And then finally, the landlord did kick us out. We then went and picked up some funding, uh, which I think we're going to touch upon later. But we then found a site in Notting Hill that we wanted to go into and make it a new yellow door. And unfortunately, we ended up in a horrible situation where the site had horrible asbestos and we spent a year in arguments with the landlord because the landlord was trying to get us to still take the site. And we had to wrangle out of it because obviously it was, you know, a hazard. We couldn't open it. So actually the first permanent site we opened was the little blue door in Fulham. Then we found a site off Portobello on All Saints Road, which is now the new little yellow door. And uh, as recently as March last year, we opened the little orange door in Clapham. Now, 
in terms of the way they look and feel, they're much more aspirational than, than when our first pop-up. I mean, to give you an idea, our first pop-up, we put 12 grand in to open. Our latest site probably was three quarters of a million. So it's a, it's a total different ballgame. But it's always meant to be a really fun flat. And then we try to make each door mimic what a flat in that area would look like. So obviously, Yellow Door in Notting Hill is more bohemian, it's more eclectic, it's more colourful. It represents sort of the multicultural aspect of Notting Hill. It's got so much life to it. Fulham is a little bit more, uh, it's got a lot more darker woods, and it's got a slightly more old man study, and it's just a bit more elegant. And then Clapham, I would say, is our most sort of millennial-based site, catering to its community. Each of the doors have their own format. So at Blue Door, you walk in and you, you come into an entrance hall. Uh, that very much looks like someone's house. You can go right into the living room in the conservatory, uh, or you can go left into the kitchen. And by kitchen, it's not our actual functioning kitchen, but it's a room that looks like a kitchen. You can play beer pong in the kitchen, or you can keep going through. You can go to the laundry room, and then you can go into the study. You can go through to the study or get the fancy dress box out in the study. Yellow door is split over two floors, and it has an open plan living room kitchen and then downstairs has a bit more of a party room, which we call the den. Can I ask um, about the design side? Um, do you hire an external designer? You know, the sort of value proposition you know, hangs on the design. Yeah. Um, and that's such an important part of, of the brand. Yeah. So here I really have to sort of a big shout out to Lally. She was one of the original four that formed the Yellow Door. She has always been the brains behind our, our design. After a year of doing the pop-up, the four of us became two, myself and my partner, Jamie, who's still now in the, still, where we're still both running the business. Uh, Lally and Ed had decided for their own personal reasons to drop out, but all very amicably. And Lally since has gone on to form a design company and her and her team, Shona and Leo, are the three brains that have gone on to design all our bars. So in some ways, uh, funnily enough, their design company is called Behind the Door. It is an external design team, but they're very much internal because they're really part of the family. Well, you've touched on it earlier, but let's return to the subject of, of investment and raising money for your expansion. You've also touched on um, you know, your step change in costs of setting up these new bars. I wonder if you can talk, first of all, about what doors, pun intended, did you knock on to start raising money for expansion? So this is literally one of the most fascinating stories. It's one of those stories that I, I used to read in entrepreneurial books and think it would never happen to me. I'll start off by saying, like all things, all great things, there's, there's a huge element of luck in it. In essence, what happened was that, I'm uh, trying to remember their name, the, a massive, massive firm in Golden Square. They basically, you know, they had 500 odd employees and they had 10 interns working for them at the time. They tasked their 10 interns to write down each 10 companies that they thought were like leading the light in the entertainment, media, and events industry. And what had happened is one of their interns had been at the Yellow Door the weekend before and had had a brilliant time. So he put our name down. So anyway, they funneled the, the 100 companies down to 10 and they interviewed the 10. We were one of the 10. And they decided to basically, after three, four rounds of interviews, to invest into us. So that, as you can imagine, was it was an incredible journey. To be fair, that came to us. I, we, we didn't go and knock on, on those doors. So after getting very excited about that, and in the background, obviously, we had to do a lot of work. We, we hired a finance expert to come in. We would spend Monday nights 
myself and Jamie actually would spend Monday nights with him putting together, you know, the five-year business plan, going through our figures in, in a way we'd never even known how to do previously, all the modeling that was going to be required, all of that stuff. And then we got the dreaded phone call that had basically said that the company had got some really bad press. They were kind of using a few tax loopholes for some of their clients and they got a lot of bad press and basically they decided to downsize and, and they basically, the head of the event arm called me up and said, well, well, the bad news is that all of the event arm has been sacked. So unfortunately, we cannot proceed with this investment. The good news is that we're going to go create our own investment firm and we want to invest into you guys. And obviously we were like, okay, sure. You know, you're on Golden Square, five floors, a huge amount of funding and reputation. You're not going to be able to just go around the corner and set up an office and then suddenly have the millions that we require to fund us. So we thought that was the end of our dream. And um, to be fair to them, Paul Bedford and Harry and all of those guys, they went and set up Edition Capital. I remember they called us straight away from their first small rickety office saying, we've set up, we're ready, let's meet again. And, you know, we followed them. They, I think they must have moved offices like five times in the first two years. We went and met them multiple times and uh, and they were true to their word. They raised the funds. We were their first ever investment. It's probably about four years ago now, five years ago. They did a sterling job. And off the back of that, now they've got, you know, a proper investment firm. They've got, they've invested into some of London's best hospitality scene, all the Incipio venues, which is Pergola. They've got Social Pantry. I mean, they've got tons. I think they've got 25 to 30 brands now that they've invested into it. So we were their first little baby. And it was just an epic rock, you know, roller coaster ride of a journey, but just epic, epic. That's very interesting. And how did you, um, I mean, what can you sort of describe for our listeners the sort of step change in operating a business when you have external investors sort of peering down your neck compared to when you've just sort of bootstrapped it yourself? Well, look, I mean, you know, in the three years we did the pop-up, even though the place was super busy, it was a small place. There was four of us, you know, none of us were really making any money to really write home about. It was just fun. It was pure PR buzz. It was full places. It was just great vibes. We were buzzing off all of that. We then, obviously, through this process of getting approached by the investors, we were like, okay, well, let's not just rely on these guys, you know, uh, let's go and meet other people. And so we actually contacted a lot of the sort of the hospitality investment firms, the Embibas of this world and things like that. And everybody we sat with loved our concept, really liked myself and Jamie and thought that, you know, they all believed in us and they were like, look, we don't normally invest in a team that don't even have a, you know, a permanent site yet. Come back to us when you have two or three. So that was just a great journey. Then obviously when we did get the funding, it just becomes a, a, a different ball game. You, you, people always say that, you know, working with a VC can be really difficult. Uh, you've got to be super careful. I have nothing but great words to say about the guys at Edition Capital. They've been so super supportive. They've supported us through a, a year of a site not ex, you know that we thought was going to open, but we couldn't because of asbestos. So we fell a year behind the business plan straight away. They've supported us now through 18 months of COVID. Yes, there's pressure, but that pressure it doesn't come from them. It comes from all of us, myself, Jamie, and them to want to achieve, to want to get a return for investors. I just think it's more interesting now. There's money to buy better sites and better locations. And if the fourth site does go through, you'll see that we'll be opening in our what will become our flagship location, I have no doubt. We can do more things. We have more rooms. You know, We have our first proper office now. Our head office is now a thing expanding to about eight, nine, ten people. It's exciting. Yes, every site costs us a lot more to open, 
than that first site did. But there's a future path that's being laid out now where, you know, we can open, you know, potentially seven to 10 of these doors in London and maybe 30 to 40 of them regionally, which we would never have without that funding. And can you compare the stress level of opening a new door compared to running these sort of international events for the F1? So I must admit, I organized a little event. It was actually at the Little Blue Door for the uh, final of the Euros. And it'd been a long time that I'd had to organize an event where so many people were reliant on me. Obviously, you know, we had to bring in screens and make sure they all worked and all the TVs were in the real time. It reminded me of the stress that I used to go through. And I hadn't had that for a long time. And I really didn't enjoy it. And I think on these events, you have like, it, it's so built to like, you work for so long and then it builds to these like five hours that you've got to deliver this event in. And they, then that goes in a whisker. And the next thing you know, you wake up the next day and you're like, wow, that was it. I worked for, for months and, and, and I don't even remember how last night quite went. I think when you've got a permanent site, you are continuously chipping away. And I really prefer this now because I, it's not just sort of gearing up towards one night. This is every day looking for gradual improvements. And you can see that evolving and evolving and evolving continuously. And I enjoy that feeling more than that sort of gut-wrenching, you know, fingers crossed, you know, here we go moment of an event. It's an interesting distinction. Now, wind forward to 2020 and January of, of last year. Your business model relies on people getting together in quite a confined space and drinking mm. and indeed dancing. How did your business cope during the lockdown or the successive lockdowns as they were? And, you know, how is it expected to recover as we creep out of lockdown? Yeah. So, I mean, look, it's probably worth saying that, that our concept is actually based around like collective groups coming together in those confined spaces. I mean, if you look through our Instagrams and all our websites, all our venue shots are all about like large couches that you might share with other people, dinner parties where you buy tickets and sit with random people. We're not sort of a space optimized restaurant where, you know, we could simply, you know, booth it up with plexiglass and everyone could still be sort of very individualized. We're, our whole ethos is about being around someone's flat coming together. So we couldn't be more worse positioned as a brand going into COVID. Now, even worse was that we secured our later side, the Orange Door, in January of that year. And it was meant to open in March of that year. And actually, we were two weeks from opening the site when COVID hit. So not only did we have a concept that is, is very anti-social uh, distancing, but we also had an, an additional rent that we had to then navigate through COVID. In terms of how we did it, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's been a like everyone in hospitality. It's been a horrible 18 months. We have lost the Christmas that we had just had with two opening sites was record breaking. We had just finally funneled some cash aside to try to buy sites three and four. Uh, we obviously put a big chunk of that towards site three. If we could have had six months of operating with site three, we would have been ready to open site four. All of that cash we saved up for that forward momentum has been blown in the last 18 months to, to survive. I'm not going to complain because, you know, we're still alive. There are people out there who unfortunately haven't managed to make it through. And, and, and so I will never be one to complain too much. But we had to fight for it. We lots of long and tough conversations with landlords. 
uh, lots of fighting and arguing and then trying to, to see things eye to eye. We also crowdfunded in November. We raised 35 grand, which was amazing at the time. We, you know, it was such a thin line because if all the landlords had decided to be really sort of difficult, that 35 grand would have kept us afloat. If the landlords had been a bit more flexible, which some of them have been in the end, that 35 grand has just actually helped sort of boost up the coffers so we can go into this next phase with a little bit more momentum. It was really, really tough. It was mentally really tough because we would keep having to, you know, I, I remember the, the reopening in November. That was the toughest, right? Because for any hospitality firm will tell you that December is the gold mine month. And I think everybody was like, okay, we've been closed. I think it was October into November. But fine, we will be open for mid-November, you know, and onwards, December, we can make all, you know, quite a lot of the money back that we've we've foregone over the previous six months. You know, it has to be a crack in December. So I remember like running around in August doing, you know, Christmas shots and buying Christmas trees and decorating the whole venue and getting that all ready so that everything was ready for December. Then I remember in November, we decorated our venues to get to be ready for Christmas. Spent hours doing all the branding, all the events packs, all the menus, you know, all our chefs trainings, all of that stuff. And took lots of bookings for Christmas. And then I think, you know, we were open, what was it, two weeks in November? And then we got shut down again. It was just mentally tough because it was just so demoralizing. And, and, and you know, it would have just been easier that they'd said, look, you won't be open again this year. Like, take some time off, you know. So instead, we were, we never really got some time off. The only time that, in fact, Jamie and myself had to almost force ourselves was in January this year. We said, right, instead of spending the next two months like we had the previous year, you know, trying to work at some other angles to make some money or do this or do that, we're just going to have six weeks off. And it was the first time that we had a break. But every other month of the year, we were either working for some reopening. We were either working for some tangential uh, thing that the brand could do to make money, whether it was like a DIY cocktail kit or some sort of fun online thing or whatever. You know, we looked at all of it. Even though we weren't open, we were technically always working and always with a lot on our minds. And then it was like stop, start, stop, start. Just mentally exhausting. Well, Cam, can you then wind forward to today and you're now fully operational, fully open. I think you were saying before we started recording that the DJs are back. Yeah. What are they looking like now? They're okay. I mean, um, actually, last night's taking was the best taking we've had in 18 months across the three sites, which is fantastic news, obviously. It's not back to this sort of idea that we're going to go straight back into like the roaring 20s. I think it's going to be slightly mitigated by the fact that I think everyone's going on a holiday first. Um, I think that's everyone's priority. I think the fact that it's in the summer and, and the weather is amazing means that people are still going to go to like parks and festivals and go out um, instead of hit the bar straight away. So I don't think it's going to go straight from north to 1,000, but I think that it's definitely a positive. And I think more than anything for me, I was at the Orange Door last night and I saw people dance and hug and connect and like I said, I think it might have been just offline before we jumped on. But, you know, I saw someone stand at the bar for the first time ever and order a beer and it was served to him over the bar. And that was such novelty because I hadn't seen that for so long. We, you know, we hadn't been able to do that. I even went over and I said, this one's on me. I, it's just nice to see. Um, yeah, it's just it's exciting. It's exciting. And we put DJs in for the first time in 18 months. And I think people really enjoyed that last night. They enjoyed having a bit of a dance. And, you know, I'm obviously hoping this weekend is, is is absolutely awesome for us. They're looking very busy, but 
we've been very busy anyways when it comes to like pre-bookings and all our tables being booked. So we haven't suffered with that. The difference now is, is what we call the walk-ins. People who can just walk in without a booking, who can go to the bar and order a beer. You know, we can now accommodate those people. And that's for each of our sites, that's probably two thirds of the capacity. So we've been operating at a third for 18 months, basically. And so now we're just hoping that two thirds come in and, uh, yeah, let, let, let's bring on the roaring 20s all over again. Well, let's look forward. And um, where would you like to see the business and, and the franchise in, in five years' time? You mentioned five or six in London. Is the regional expansion or indeed international expansion on the cards? Yeah, so, yeah, I, I think our original plan had been to do five in, in, in London, one in sort of each quadrant and then one centrally. As it pans out, our fourth site will be central, which will actually kind of mean that we'll have ended up doing four on kind of one side of the of the London map, which suddenly starts opening up the, the question of, you know, well, maybe actually the idea that we could only do five is wrong. We could probably do seven or eight now in London quite easily because we have a whole other half of London to really think about. I'd like to think the beautiful thing about our, our brand, you know, if I have to describe us in a line, I always say, you know, it's house parties and dinner parties. And I think house parties and dinner parties, whether they were done in medieval times or whether they'll be on Mars, are always the most fun parties. They're not reliant on trends or, you know, whether Peruvian food is the coolest thing in town. And so, you know, you open a Peruvian restaurant and it stays trendy for three years and then it's like, okay, cool, the next fad is this. You know, house parties will always be cool. Everyone loves a house party. So, you know, the idea that our brand isn't stuck to a trend or to a specific moment in time makes us believe that there's the ability to open many of these. Uh, you touched upon regional. I think that's a definite possibility. I think, you know, especially with Brexit and the sort of the North becoming a, another powerhouse. You know, if you if you go up to Manchester, as I did last year, you'll see the amount of construction and building that's going on there and the scene that's developing. Liverpool's got a great scene, but then you've got all the great university towns like the Bristols and Edinburgh's and Leeds that have great universities, but also have a great local community that I think would understand sort of a London brand coming to them. Final question though, what advice would you give to us some of our younger listeners who are maybe have that sort of entrepreneurial itch or indeed to yourself when you were sitting in the, the loos in the nightclubs collecting email addresses? What advice would you give to our younger listeners who are looking to pursue an entrepreneurial career? I think you've got to believe, you know, I think... It sounds a bit cheesy, but I think you really have to believe. I remember reading chapters upon chapters of, in entrepreneurial books of like these crazy stories where this pop-up food truck suddenly became, you know, a multi-chain million pound restaurant. I was like, that stuff does not happen. It just doesn't happen or it will not happen to me. And my stories become exactly that. And I have to pinch myself all the time. But I always deep down, ever since I was a kid, Everybody, all my dad's friends used to always say, you know, you're going to be an entrepreneur. You just have that sort of, I used to try to sell things to to my dad's friends. I'd go pick up seashells and then try to sell them to them. And like a nine-year-old kid and they were like, you know, you just got that sort of desire to do that. So I, I, belief is huge, but I, I must also say that behind the belief, the one thing that you have to do is you've got to work hard. I mean, belief is nothing if you just sort of sit there, you know, with your hands out hoping that it's going to come, you know, sitting in a communal toilet is probably, you know, beneath most people I know. They would say, you know, I would never do that. And it, it wasn't fun. I'm not going to lie. It wasn't fun. But without that hard work or that determination 
to get those emails to then throw that first gig, I'd never be where I am today. So it's a combination of those two things for me. You've got to believe that you're going to go and achieve those things, but you've got to work really, really hard at it. Nothing comes easy in life. Belief and hard work. Cam, thank you for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Candidashti. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like it or subscribe to it and tell your friends. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.